This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business, it's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. The following podcast contains explicit language. So this is an interview you all have been asking for since day one. Grover Norquist is the head of Americans for Tax Reform. He's the creator of the No New Taxes pledge that virtually every Republican officeholder has signed. He's the founder of the Wednesday meetings that bring together pretty much every group of note on the American right. Newt Gingrich, when he was speaker, called Norquist the most effective conservative activist in America. He's also, in my experience, really one of the savviest observers of American politics I know. In, in a town where people tend to be pretty tactical and reactive. Norquist is unusually strategic and forward-looking, which is one reason liberals often hate and fear him, but it's something he talks about here in terms of how he thinks about that. We also talk in this conversation about Norquist's time in Angola and Mozambique helping anti-communist rebels, which is a part of his history I hadn't known about. We discuss whether the rise of Trump shows the conservative base isn't quite as committed to small government and low taxes as Norquist would hope. We debate the Paul Ryan budget a bit. We talk about Nor- Norquist's efforts to coax Silicon Valley over to the Republican Party. We actually even talk about Norquist's time at Burning Man, speaking of Silicon Valley, which is a a fun part of the conversation. This is an interview that might make some of you mad, which I think is a good thing, actually. Whether you're on the left or the right, you should understand how Grover Norquist thinks. He's He's an important player in this town. And I'm grateful to him for taking so much time to let us into his worldview here. Before I go to our conversation, though, as always, please, if you're enjoying this podcast, share it with your friends, put it on the Twitters, on Facebook, email it around. It, it means a lot to me. And also, I've gotten so many great ideas for guests from the emails you're all sending. That's including today's guest. So keep sending them to EzraKleinShow at Vox.com. Again, EzraKleinShow at Vox.com. With that, here's Grover. I learned something about you that I didn't know researching this interview. You flew around Mozambique and Pakistan aiding anti-communist guerrillas? I worked more in Angola. In Angola? Um, with uh, Zavimbi and Unita against the MPLA and the Cuban occupation there, 80s into the 90s. How old were you? 30. You went to Harvard. You were working in conservative politics in D.C. How did you get involved in flying around Angola brokering meetings between guerrilla groups? Uh, I've always worked on trying to do things that weren't being done. I mean, I decided at a certain age I was going to do political work and that that's sort of where the value added was. That's where I could do things I didn't see other people doing or didn't see them doing as well as I thought they could be done. That started on the tax issue. I got out of college, straight out of college, went to run the National Taxpayers Union. 
uh, as associate director and I became executive director mm-hmm. fairly quickly as people sort of moved on, but it was right after Proposition 13. And then as I kept working on issues, whenever something would come up that was being ignored, and at first I thought that the opposition to the Soviet occupation of Afghanistan was not being paid as much attention to as it, it should be. Uh, and I did some political work in the States with the Afghan resistance guys, Abdul Haq and others. And over time, you saw something similar in Angola, different but with some similarities in Mozambique. Uh, Mozambique and Afghanistan not having oil <laughs> being what, what made them different from Angola. So it was one of those things where when there's something that could be done, I didn't spend all my time on those projects, but uh, and if I could, I handed them off to somebody else who could focus on them. But I think sometimes you have to step in if it's not being done, and you can't assume that somebody else is doing it or somebody else is going to do it competently. But, but when you say not being done, what did you see as the particular value that you, a 30-year-old who mm-hmm. grew up in the United States, was working on tax issues, were, were going to provide? Because that seems like a big skill set jump. Um, not and what did you do exactly? Well, in, in Angola, I did some writing with Zavimbi, did wrote some articles with and for him, and made the case domestically that the defeat of Cuban Soviet imperialism in Angola would be an important step in weakening the Soviet Union, the entire empire. Mozambique was slightly different, but it, it, it similar. Uh, I just didn't spend as much time there. And obviously in, in Afghanistan, I worked at the beginning of that war and then at the end of the war in each case, because I thought people were paying attention to it towards the middle. As it got to the end, there was an effort to cut off all aid to the Afghan resistance as soon as the Soviets would agree that someday they'd leave. And we got a Sims resolution out of the Senate saying, no, we will cut off aid to the Afghan resistance when the Soviets have left, not someday when they promise it. And even when, with the Soviets leaving, the government they put in place was able to hold on for some time. How did you get in touch with some of these rebel leaders? What is the process by which you actually became close enough that you could travel with them, that you could yeah. write stories for them? I imagine there's a certain amount of mistrust from, from the outset. Yeah. And I <laughs> I once mentioned to Zavimbi that- Who is Zavimbi? Uh, Zavimbi, Just uh, for the, the head of UNITA, the, the anti-communist, non-communist resistance in Angola after the MPLA and the Soviets and the Cubans took it over when the Portuguese left. When the Portuguese left their empire, African Empire, Mozambique, Angola, and a couple of little islands, in each case, they handed them off to communists. They kept in power, but they really needed the Cuban and Soviet help to stay in power. They represented an ethnic minority in Angola. The Soviet approach in Africa was to pick an ethnic minority, as they did in Rhodesia, Zimbabwe. They picked the Matabili, which was 20%, not the Shona, which was 80%. They could never run with elections. The Shona could have governed with elections. Mm -hmm. They chose not to, but they could have done that. But the Soviets always picked an ethnic minority that could only rule with Soviet aid and a non-democratic form of government. So going back to when you're 30 and you're, you're making decisions between directing the taxpayers union, between going to places like Angola and Mozambique, what would you have said you were good at? You, You said a second ago that you were always 
clear that many things weren't being done or weren't being done competently. So what was the competence that you felt then that you brought to things? Because it clearly wasn't just that you knew Mm. tax as well, right? I mean, you you believed you had some kind of skill set that certainly ranged over issues. It was organizing and particularly coalition organizing. I went to college, then I spent a year down running National Taxpayers Union, then I went back to business school. And business school is an awful lot of dotted line. Um, I mean, it's easy to tell people what to do if they work for you. Do this, right? Uh, eh, doesn't sometimes. mean they'll. Doesn't, <laughs> yes, that's true. <laughs> doesn't mean they'll do it, but they might do it. But you can't even pretend to tell people on dotted lines or going up the chain what to do. You have to make the case. This is why it's in your interest to work with me. It's in my interest to work with you on this effort. So there's an awful lot of coalition building, I think, early on. What I developed over time was was now the Wednesday meeting, which is a, a meeting where we meet every in D.C., uh, every Wednesday, rain or shine, whether Congress is in session or not, because we almost never have a conversation about tomorrow or next week. Those are useless conversations. There isn't anything you can do about tomorrow. There isn't anything you can do about next week. There are a lot of things you could do to affect something six months from now, and there's no limit to what you can do to affect 25 years from now, if you get going now. So the lever that allows you to move the world is time and work, but time. And so our meeting is forward-looking, but also what are we doing over the next year, five years? How are we going to change the world, change its direction just a little bit now? People can give speeches about, I'm going to do this tomorrow. No, you're not. What you mean is you want to do it, and you think by saying you'll do it as opposed to we'll do it, you sound emphatic, and you think by saying tomorrow that people will believe that you really, really mean it as opposed to, I mean, my first reaction is, you have no idea how long something like this takes to get done. You're not serious about life. So the, the Wednesday meeting, and we can work back to sort of how we got there, the Wednesday mm-hmm. meeting, right now it's 150 to 180 people every Wednesday, hour and a half, 90 minutes long. There'll be 30 presentations of three minutes each. That includes congressmen or senators or back when you had a Republican administration. There are people from Republican governors. And we started with about 20 people with the effort to slow down and stop Hillary's drive to sort of nationalize health care. When we realized... As this we began moved, in 93, eight, then? 93, 94? early 93, okay. early 93. And what you realized going on early on was you had to slow the whole process down. You had to deal with the spending issues. You had to deal with the gun control issues, all of the things that the Clintons were advancing. And so like stone soup, the kid's story about how you make stone soup. It's amazing what you can make with just a stone and all this other stuff added in. We built a larger coalition that was 40 people by 94 that included the top guys at the Republican National Committee and congressional folks. Gingrich actually invited us to, when he became speaker, to move the meeting to the speaker's office, you know, with a big dinosaur head and all Mm -hmm. that cool stuff. And I said, no. (laughs) Then it would be the speaker's meeting. (laughs) And it would be a discussion of what the speaker wanted the modern center-right Reagan Republican conservative movement to do. And while the speaker is an important part of the center-right movement, and you should have speaker meetings, this is the center-right meeting to which you are invited and to which your representatives are, are invited to participate. So it's House, it's Senate, it's outside groups. It's, uh, I mean, anyone who voted for Reagan or would have if they were the right age is invited. It's the 60% coalition. It is not... Carl Rose, 51% can <laughs> get across the finish line. One, 51%, somebody can steal an election. If you earn 60% of the vote, sometimes your candidates have too many DWIs to get across the finish line. Sometimes they forget to mention mistresses. Sometimes the other candidate's actually quite good 
mm -hmm. being a candidate, and sometimes the other people steal elections. So you better earn 60% of the vote if you want to be sure you have 50 plus on election day. So you're constantly looking. At our meeting in DC, we have the traditional values, conservatives who want traditional marriage, and we have the gay Republicans. And part of what the coalition does is explain to everybody, you're all in the same room and you're all voting for the same candidate for, for different reasons. I remember this from 1980, a quote that Phyllis Schlafly had, everybody's allowed to vote for my candidate for their own reason. Whereas at the time, I remember thinking, I would talk to somebody and say, you should vote for Reagan because he'll cut taxes. They said, okay, fine. And, and then you'd add seven other things, and then they'd agree with you until the sixth one, then they disagreed. And mm -hmm. One fish, one hook. You, don't, you, got, you need to find out what the vote-moving issue is for that person, and you want to win their vote on that. Over time, if they're going to be politically active, you might well want them to, at the meetings, watch everybody else. Oh, I'd never understood the Second Amendment. Now I do understand why it might be of interest to me. It's not why I voted. It's not why I came into the coalition. But I'm much more sympathetic to the – we actually have a big circular – Table. Must be a very big and, table for 180 people. Well, there are about 20 people at the table, and then there's stadium seating out around it. So everybody can see everybody else's eyes. Mm -hmm. We designed the, meet, the room for the meeting. And the goal is that no votes. We, know, we don't agree. We don't pick presidential candidates. We don't endorse people. Any Republican libertarian who wants to show up who's running for office is allowed to come and give their two- to three-minute presentation on why they're a good guy. We now do throw up behind them the stats on the district because we had people coming in <laughs> ridiculous districts that glad you're running, but please don't tell people that you're going to be winning mm -hmm. this election cycle. So back, you know, D plus 26 district. Okay. Understood. We are running a campaign to build the party, the movement to get you known in that district. We're not trying to elect you this year. And others, you look and you say, it's R plus 20. You go, okay, the primary, focus on the primary. It is the election. So all the candidates are, are invited to come through. I think all the congressional candidates come at some point during a congressional year, most of the Senate races and a bunch of governors. So it's elected officials, it's outside groups, and it's building a coalition, understanding, and this is where some conservative leaders, activists get it wrong. They think a conservative is somebody who agrees with some 10-point plan. You only need someone in for one reason, if it's a good enough reason. So around the table, Senate right table. Don't raise my taxes. Okay. Leave my property alone. I homeschool. Two million people homeschool. Ten million have been homeschooled since it was largely legalized about over 30, 20, 30 years ago. And homeschoolers self-define that way. If you talk to homeschoolers, hi, very quickly, I homeschool. Why? Because somebody's sacrificed a career or a job to stay home and educate the kids, and it's not what everybody else does, and it used to be considered odd. Now they win all the spelling bees, so it's not odd, but, it, it, but it's a huge sacrifice. And they self-identify that way, and one party is owned by the teachers' union and would like to shut it down, and the other party celebrates it. So the, just a huge movement that's available only to the R's at present. And whereas it used to be a left-wing phenomenon, go back 50 years when it was more illegal, and then it switched it's always been about quality of education, but now has a political tent, partly because of the enemies. And, and has more of a religious dimension to homeschooling. For a lot of people, but, it's, it's, it's actually becoming less that. Yeah, that's Because true. that's the easy way to get into it. Mm -hmm. Find a church that will let you use some extra space and stuff like mm -hmm. that. Or your motivation, you're offended by secular something in public schools. Now that it's safe, more people do it just for the education. So, But, but let me back yeah. you up to the theory of the meeting for a sure. second. I think this is interesting. So... You talked a couple of minutes ago about 
running a meeting for the 5, 10, 15, 25 year time frame. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, you have a meeting that is 33 minutes, super quick presentations. And some of them are by people running for office this year, next year. So two things. One, why do you structure the meeting with that many presentations so quickly? Because that can sound a bit numbing. How much detail about a 25-year plan can you get into in three minutes? And two, how do you keep a focus on that longer framework? Sure. Present briefly, frequently. So the person who does and the groups that do homeschooling will present from time to time, here's how homeschooling's doing, here's what the challenges are, here's where we could use help. And so people talk about that. They're the people who focus on various property rights issues. Or This is the meeting where everybody in the broad center right needs to know what everybody else is doing. But you only need two to three minutes on that. We'll have four candidates in a 30-person presentation. It's not candidate-heavy. And then it goes to no candidates as soon as the election's over. Shortly before the election, if anybody is there in the last month, it's talking to the meeting instead of to their district. They're not winning. They're not serious. So you want the broad meeting to understand what's going on so that people can see new issues and opportunities to work together. Plus, it's three minutes plus a handout. I get an inch of handouts, not counting magazines, every week. And I'll spend the next week going through those and, and reading them. The way you can say to somebody, I know your issue is very important and you've got 10 key issues. You can talk about your issue, what you're doing, and then hand out the memo on 10 things to do, 10 things that are important to remember about my stuff. Plus, then there are side spinoff coalition meetings. There's one on the gig economy or the, the Uber economy. It's now running about 25 people. It's, it's, I think, one of the more interesting meetings. How do you keep it protected? What are the threats to it uh, in labor law and other regulations that the feds and states have. Uh, there's one on labor issues, period. Labor issues, there's one on... Are, are uh, you surprised by the way gig economy companies have embraced former Democratic staffers? No. Like too, David Pluff going to Uber and Jay Carney going to Amazon. and Yeah, if the people are trying to kill you are Democrats, you hire a Democrat for access. This is what amateurs do. It's what the Fortune 500 used to do 30 years ago. They would hire the guy who could get you the meeting with Ted Kennedy who would tell you no. Okay? And you would hire a former Ted Kennedy or Biden staff who would say, they want to cut off two of your fingers, but I think if you only offer them one figure, we have a deal here. Of course, we play this game every year, so in 10 years, you're like the man from the South, short fingers. I think it's not a wise decision, but it's one that you see generation after generation, people who know nothing about politics because they're focused on their business hire somebody in D.C. who can go speak to the guy who's trying to screw him, as if that would help you. And what I've tried to argue to the business community is find someone who agrees with you, a Hill staffer. And the challenge is, for most businesses, there aren't any Democrats over the age of 30 who aren't owned by the labor unions or the trial lawyers or the spending interests, or they wouldn't be Democrats anymore if they worked on Capitol Hill. There used to be people like that. 50 years ago. Not now. Is that true? Do you really find, and recognizing that the question of what it means in, in this province to be owned by anyone is, is an interesting one, but you really go around and you talk to folks. I know you have re relationships with Democrats. I know you, I think sure. you've worked with Cory Booker on criminal justice reform yeah. and, mm -hmm. and other folks. You think all these folks are just sort of mindlessly owned by these interest groups? There are lines in the sand that they cannot cross. But, we, we but just, you're a guy who likes to draw lines that people can't cross, right? 
Oh, on taxes, yes. Yeah. But the problem is de-congressional staffers. The modern Democratic Party, without forced union dues as a funding source, ceases to exist as a modern Democratic Party. Without trial lawyer resources, it can't compete in the South. 90% of the money raised by the Democratic Party of Texas <laughs> for some period of time was all trial lawyer money because they didn't have the union money, they had trial lawyer money. Alabama had similar situations. So between those two sources, you can do many things. Just don't, can't cross the line on what organized labor needs, and you can't cross the line on trial lawyers. And we had four Supreme Court justices who just voted. It's okay for government employees at the state and local level to be forced to pay for union dues. Even if they don't want to join the union, they can be forced to pay the equivalent of union dues, called them agency fees, even that they don't want to have anything to do with the union, because that's a line even Supreme Court justices with lifetime, they would never have gotten that job if they hadn't sworn forever on that subject. And they're not going to be able to cross it. Again, the four Supreme Court justices who, who didn't come out of that world particularly, but the one thing you know about the next Democratic appointee was he, will have, he or she will have already committed on the Friedrich case that, you, yes, you can be forced to, to pay union dues, period, at the state and local level, which is an outrage. I mean, it's just obscene. There's nothing in the Constitution <laughs> that makes that, you know, the whole First Amendment has got to throw it out the window for that. But that's a non-negotiable for the left and for the modern structure of the Democratic Party. It's not non-negotiable necessarily for, I don't know, Ralph Nader, perhaps, but he's not part of the structure of the modern Democratic Party. So I want to go way back here. Yeah. So how did you get involved in politics and in what way? I read a story that you came up with the taxpayer pledge, which for folks uh, listening who don't know, you have been a driving force behind a pledge that most Republicans, nearly every Republican mm -hmm. major 90 plus. holder, has signed to not raise taxes under any circumstances. And I read that you came up with that at 12. Sort of. I, I was um, not thinking much about taxes at 12. So what is your path to politics here? Okay. Well, on, on the, the pledge, and it's about when I was getting political. I worked on the Nixon campaign in 1968. I took the train into Boston from 12 miles outside of Boston to help work on the campaign. So I, I was that, at least that political mm -hmm. at, at 12. And our teacher in class was saying, voters are stupid. They don't know. Democracy doesn't work because nobody knows the name of their state legislator and very few people know the name of their congressman. And only a certain number of people know the vice president is. And how can you vote intelligently if you don't even know the name of the city council? Okay. And I can remember I was on the bus home from school. And I thought, well, if the modern Republican Party said, you don't know the names of our candidates, but they won't raise your taxes, if that's the one thing you knew, then you could compete at the local level. You, the Republicans, this is at the time when Republicans won the presidency, but didn't win the local elections. And perhaps if you started with the Republican Party will not raise your taxes. And then the second part of that, which is unstated but equally important, more important, if you're not going to raise taxes, every time you bump up against revenue, you have to reform government. Whereas raising taxes is what elected officials do instead of reforming government. You felt this at 12? Yeah. That's a hell of a thought to have as a 12-year-old. Well, I, I, well, Do you have a very political family? Rockefeller Republicans. So they were interested. My parents were interested in politics. Mm -hmm. I brought them up right. They're more Reagan Republicans now. <laughs> but uh, the, uh, they did try and sell them on Phil Crane in the 1979 because Reagan was a little you know, squishy. Sure. Actually, I, I worried about him being old. But, and I knew 
feel better. But that was a short infatuation, very, very quickly. Before New Hampshire, I was helping the Reagan campaign. And actually, my grandmother used to send up four copies of uh, Human Events every month. She'd get them and then mail them up to my Conservative parents. magazine. Conservative magazine, yeah. yeah. So I would, I'd, I, would, I would read that and, and so on. I was an anti-communist first. My public library decided to get rid of all their silly books like I Led Three Lives and Witnessed by Whitaker Chambers and all the anti-communist stuff, Masters of Deceit, mm-hmm. which I all bought for a nickel for their going away sale. And I remember reading all those in, in the basement where it was cool. So I was, as an anti-communist before I was a free market guy and realized that politics mattered. It's also partly, if you live in the United States, politics matters in a way that it doesn't if you live in the Netherlands. If you get everything right in Denmark... The Germans can still eat you. You know what I mean? <laughs> hey, we got, we're just doing everything. We have low taxes. We privatize the post office. and <laughs> But if you do everything right in the United States, you really have changed the world, both as a, mm-hmm. as a model. I mean, people can look at Hong Kong and learn from Hong Kong or Singapore on their tax rates and so on. But it's a lot easier to teach them from Washington, D.C. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline, because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Support for the gray area comes from Burrow. Getting the right furniture for your place can be really annoying. At this point in my life, I've probably gone through maybe three sets of outdoor deck furniture, and it's a pain in the ass for a different reason every single time. It doesn't look like it did in the pictures, the assembly isn't what they said it was, or it's just not as advertised for whatever reason. Thankfully, Burrow is the furniture company that wants to make it all a little easier. Last year, Burrow introduced their outdoor line, and this spring they're adding to it with their Dunes line, offering new seating, dining, and lounger options designed for luxury, comfort, and durability. Burrow furniture is easy to put together and take apart, so you can move or store it as needed. And it ships straight to your door for free. Gray Area listeners can get 15% off their first order at burrow.com slash box. That's burrow, B-U-R-R-O-W dot com slash box for 15% off. Borough.com slash box. So I want to come back to the, the tax pledge in a second, but mm-hmm. but I want to ask, you get into politics around anti-communism. Mm-hmm. That is part of your introduction as a child. It's part of what you work on as, as a young adult. And in 1989, the Soviet Union falls. I'm very curious how you think politics has changed since the fall of the Soviet Union how you think the Republican and Democratic parties have changed, what it means to be in politics has changed. How do you see participating in in politics is different now than it was, say, 30 or 40 years ago? That's a very interesting question. You you do remove one of the big issues. You remove, and it strengthens both sides. One, the Democrats no longer have to defend having defended Stalin. I mean, I grew up in Massachusetts. I went to Harvard. I knew people and parents and to explain that Stalin was a good guy. Mm -hmm. So there really were people in the United States who wanted our team to lose the Cold War. I went to school with them. (laughs) And many of them went on to become 
famous left-wingers. So they no longer had to defend that. They could sort of pretend it did never happen or something. So that was a big weight off the left. So instead of trying to turn us into East Germany, they're now trying to turn us into France. Scandinavia. Bernie Sanders has been very clear. Oh, oh Denmark. <laughs> Bernie, Denmark I can't speak to, but um, Sweden... No capital gains, no death tax, complete school choice. The reason the trial lawyer laws that make ours look destructive, they have high marginal tax rates, and the government's too big. But on a list of about 20 things, they do a whole bunch of them right, which is why they're standing instead of sinking. I I found that Sweden, Singapore, Denmark, a couple of the others, both sides find a lot to like there, and they never Mm -hmm. talk about the same things. Oh, no. Sweden does a number of things quite right, and they do a number of things quite wrong. They'd do much better off if they had lower marginal tax rates. They'd lose less people. But by not having capital gains tax, by not having a death tax, they compensate somewhat for the, the rate factor. And having and school choice. The guys who are pushing school choice in Britain said, we want the Swedish model. <laughs> school choice. So it, it, it strengthened the left because they never, no longer had to defend the indefensible. Defend right. What and, happens on the right? And explain to us that Alger Hiss was not guilty. And well, like I that. mean, to put this a slightly different way, right? There's also just the broader defense dimension of it. The Democrats well, for a very long time were just not as trusted on defense. Right. And that was, I think, in a day-to-day political way, the big thing the left was always paying down. It was damage. Now, on the other hand, the Republicans, I mean, we looked at when Reagan wanted to spend more money vis-a-vis the Soviet Union, he had to spend $3 for every $1 of national defense you got. Two, because it's the government and it's wasteful, whether you're building missiles or, or hiring soldiers. Uh, and then a third one, because you had to buy buses for New York in order to buy D'Amato's vote. The defense buildup is a very, very expensive project because you not only have to pay for the defense, you have to buy people's votes with domestic discretionary corporate cronyism. And that's one of the reasons why the drawdown Soviet Union ceases to exist, broken into 15 pieces. I mean, Russia still has nuclear weapons. It's still run by nasty people who would take a bite out of their neighbors if, if they had a shot at it. They're not very nice to Chechnya, and they're not very nice to the Ukraine. And they'd, they'd do more if they could. But it's a thousand miles back. <laughs> from, it's not sitting on top of Berlin. It's not next to Vienna. I mean, it's, it's way back from where it once was. And because they can't win, there's no longer the left. No, nobody spies for the Soviet Union because they're a communist or they, they think they're a great, that this is the future. They can't sell the future anymore. And you, you make it paid, you make it blackmailed, and it, you know, those sorts of things. You may think you're nicer and smarter than everybody. Hanson, jerks become traitors, not idealistic bad people. So Republicans, conservatives, no longer have to carry this everything necessary. This is what Tip O'Neill said about Reagan. He says, to get his defense budget, he'll give us everything. We don't have to do that because you just don't need the same defense budget when you don't have a Soviet Union. Plus, defense has gotten more high-tech, less labor-intensive, more capital-intensive, less expensive. Although it is a, it seems like a fascinating fault line in the Republican Party here, the folks who feel that we should be spending at least a trillion dollars more on defense, Marco Rubio, Ted Cruz, and factions in the party, Rand Paul being one of them. But it sometimes seems Donald Trump wavers here. He talks about spending more, but, but seems fundamentally so skeptical that there's a push in the party to get up to much higher defense spending levels, and then clearly a, a faction of the party that would much prefer to be cutting taxes, much prefer to be taking that money out of defense and using it to shrink government and pay down the deficit. 
It's an interesting question. Every once in a while, somebody says, we should spend 4% of GDP on national defense. The Heritage Foundation at one point put out a yeah. statement to that effect. And I think Mitt Romney had yeah. backed that in Yes, Romney did. He yeah. did. It's one of the stupidest things I've ever heard. What would we think if somebody said, well, we should spend X percentage of money on welfare? Really? How about you spend money to accomplish something? Tell us what you're trying to accomplish. Let's look at how to do it. And then we'd know what it costs to go in with, you know, that's the, the idiot who goes into the uh, auto store and says, I have $100,000. Well, I know how much the car is going to cost him. <laughs> <laughs> you don't, you know, I'm determined to have a $100,000 car. Well, we have $700,000 cars. But boy, let me, let me ask you something about this because I very much agree with what you just said. But this feels to me like the criticism people make, including me for that matter, of your tax pledge, which is to say that there are times when it's great to cut taxes. There are also times when it's important to raise them and to sign a pledge before the Mm -hmm. fact, taking away your flexibility, taking away your ability to respond to circumstance is not a wise thing to do. No, I understand the argument, but it's it's wrong right now. The you know, I thought I was going to convince you here. <laughs> I, I thought I thought here on this podcast, I would. You yeah, had me there it's, for it's a moment. Clever, yeah. I wavered. I wavered. I, I saw it. Pass I just over your fell face. back. Um, <laughs> the federal government, state government, local government take about thirty percent of GDP. Maybe the government could intelligently spend ten percent of GDP. So we are so far from. Where do, where do you get that number? The though? size of government. Federal, state, and local for most of our history, way below 10%, general history. But but I could also walk you back through it if you pass the Ryan budget plan and move entitlements. I mean, if we move entitlements and pensions from defined benefit to defined contribution, as a number of states have started to do with their government employment, Michigan did it in 98-99 for state employees. They just passed in a number of states moving in that direction. Utah is probably the most dramatic. They did it for all state, local, cops, firemen, everybody, defined contribution pension from now on starting about four years ago. If you take pensions out and move things like Social Security to a fully funded, individually controlled effort, which gives people more control over their lives rather than bureaucrats, you downsize a whole bunch of the government. If you have full school choice and allow parents to go to public, private, homeschooling, whatever, and take, in the case of Nevada, their $5,000 of state money with them, it dramatically drops the cost of a number of things that government does. Now, then there's a list of things government shouldn't do in the first place. So, but, so, but looking at the Ryan budget for a minute, because I, I think that's actually the, not the, a bad... The, the, ro- the roadmap, I'm sorry, his roadmap to prosperity. So you're talking about 2010, not, not the more recent ones. Not, well, the, no, the budget he does now is how do we do today, given Obama's got the veto? What can we pass? That's get through today. The roadmap to prosperity is how do you reform entitlements? How do you block grant out to the states? Uh, so you're sort of like a, a, a Ryan hipster. You like the Ryan budget before it got too cool. I think so, it, the Ryan approach, I mean, there, there are two different issues here. One was, it's like Kemp Roth. One was Ryan's long-term reform, which requires mm-hmm. a Republican president, 51 senators and Republican House majority. And then you can basically drops the size of government in half from what it would be 40 years from now. So, but I look at the Ryan budget and I've followed those projections about how it drops the size of government. And mm-hmm. you're completely right when you say it has a lot of, and particularly in 2010 when it had healthcare and social security, I think it's still social security in 2010. It had it at some point. Um, so, social security has actually never been part of Ryan's proposal because that takes 60 votes in the Senate. He, it wasn't the, the early budgets? 
No. Okay, so it had healthcare. I know he brought out, he took out a bunch Medicaid, of Medicaid, Medicare, as mm-hmm. but it takes the major four. But he did an employer tax reform in 2010, which left the budget later on. Anyway, the point isn't to get distracted yeah. on that. It's to say that his projections in the more recent budgets, the way he gets the government down is to some degree, there are, as you say, movements to define benefit plans. Obviously, he takes Medicare, takes it in a premium support direction. He has put forward uh, Social Security privatization plans in the mm-hmm. past and, and clearly believes I would, in them. I would a, be supportive of, of an option of somebody deciding to take their FICA and put it into a 401k rather than leave it in the hands of the government. But when you look at what his projections say, what he mm-hmm. basically does is he takes discretionary domestic spending and without really explaining how, takes it from, and I'm taking these numbers from memory now, so mm-hmm. if I get them slightly wrong, forgive me, but roughly I think 12.5% of GDP to two and three quarters of a percent of GDP in something like 2050 or 2075. And when you looked at it, mm-hmm. it did not take old age spending, it did not take healthcare spending, it did not take the military spending and drop it so far down. It did cut all those things, but it did this tremendous cut on those dimensions of spending and just got a ton out of basically saying on the spreadsheet, well, we're just going to make these parts of the budget worth nothing. And those are things like R&D. Those are things like infrastructure. Those aren't even the ones that when I talk to conservatives about what they hate about government, Mm -hmm. that they feel are really wasteful. Those aren't the transfer payments to a first approximation. And so that struck me as a place where a little bit of the veil got pulled back, that it's very hard to say how you're going to support all these people if you want to continue with those commitments without just sort of doing a little bit of hand-waving over here. I'm actually quite enthusiastic about Ryan's plan. And remember, the Republican Party has now voted for that five times in the yeah. House, and nobody's lost an election over the subject. Mm-hmm. This is a deeper commitment than existed for Kemp Roth going forward. Kemp Roth was, was one issue. The Ryan roadmap is not only radical reform on taxes, and again, the other reason, the other way you can dramatically drop spending as a percentage of the government is to increase the size of government. So the measure that I'm going for is to drop the size cost of government in half over a 25-year period as a percentage of the economy. Part of that is if you grow at 4% a year as Reagan did instead of 2% a year as Obama did, not only would you have 13 million more Americans at work today than we have now, it's a lot of grumpiness. Why? Trump and Cruz and and Bernie Sanders grumpiness. There are 13 million families without somebody working in them that that would be if we had normal, reasonable growth. And you can go from 2% to 4% with dramatic reform in the tax structure. Uh, who, who are the economists who make you feel that's possible? I always talk to people about this, mm-hmm. and I, I really want to believe this. Do you know what I mean? I want to believe that government has a power to increase growth that much. But in some ways, the, the folks who say it, it it, it feels to me like they have more faith in government than I do, actually, because uh, I think you can get a couple tenths of percentage point of growth out of serious tax reform, particularly the kinds of tax reform we could imagine. But two percentage points a year, I mean, it's tremendous what you're talking about there. And it's not something we've seen in other countries of our development level. No, but we've seen it in the United States. We've seen it when we cut taxes in the 20s. We saw it when we cut taxes in the 60s. And we saw it when we cut taxes in the 80s. We saw it under Reagan. Reagan's period was at four, average 4% growth. We've been under Obama with 2% growth, French levels of, of economic but growth. But when you look at Reagan's period, I mean, by the way, a government lot happening with yeah. the Federal Reserve at that period, right? Yeah, I mean, we were collapsing the money supply, yeah. and we had a, a recession. Right, and, and but that was really important. To get rid of inflation, get rid of inflation, yes. catch-up growth, yeah. yeah um, to getting rid of inflation. I, just, I, feel that, I feel that saying that that period was all tax reform 
misses a lot of what oh no there was deregulation it was deregulation also what you did have was you had inflation dramatically reduced down to about two percent and i'm not advocating that government can do something to help the economy i'm arguing the government can stop doing things and that helps the economy on tax reform you want to take the corporate rate which is now top rate of 35 percent european average is 25 percent Canada is down below 20%. The Chinese are 25%. The French are 25%. European average is 25 We have 35 plus 4.9, which is the average state corporate tax. So we're about 40%. They're at 25 average in Europe. We've got to take our rate down to where corporate, federal, and state is 20 to 25 I have a question for you on the yeah. corporate side, because I'm sure you've thought about this. So as you say, we have a much higher statutory corporate tax rate than most developed nations. Marginal tax rate. Marginal tax rate. Yeah. When you get to the effective tax rates that corporations pay, we're high, but as I remember, we're second or third. Once you deal with people deducting interest and all the other things that exist in our code, which is one reason it's hard, as you know better than most people, to actually get folks to agree on corporate tax reform because when you start trying to take away these deductions that lead to the higher rate, all of a sudden they don't like it anymore. But when you end up with the world, I agree if there's a deadweight loss by from people just spending all this time working their way through the tax code. But we are quite a bit lower in terms of the actual rate they're paying than, than that suggests. So is the gain from that kind of reform as big as it suggests when you use yeah. those statutory numbers? Yeah, because you say statutory, but the word is marginal. All decisions are based on the margin. The fact that the first $50 million that you earned is taxed at 10, these aren't the right numbers, but the first $50 million are taxed at 10%, but after that 35%, every decision you make is 35%. It's not 10. 10 means nothing. All decisions are based on the margin, and that's why the marginal rate is so important. It's not, you can drown crossing a river with an average you know, depth of a foot. Marginal rates matter. Averages don't. Average, nobody makes but a decision based on average. But don't effective rates matter? I mean, you mean, you you mean have, average. You mean average, right? No, I don't mean average. I mean the, the actual rate you're paying. The rate yes, I recognize on the it next within, dollar I recognize you within earn, that you have different the margins. The next dollar. You're but, making a decision on assuming you're but to, to just because I th- yeah. just to bring the audience here for one yeah. second because I'm worried we're getting a little uh, just beyond people quickly. So the thing we're arguing about here is that you can have a rate of 35 percent, and you can pay an average or effective rate of say 27 percent. Within that, what what you're saying is that there are many different brackets, and you're worried about these these costs on the margin. But if you know that your effective rate because you are working with tax lawyers and you know what you did last year is not going to be 35%. The fact that it says 35% on the sticker, on the tax form, you are making decisions about something much lower that is much more specific to your business. So I'm I'm just not persuaded here that the 35% rate is the one that a company like GE is actually dealing with. Well, on the companies, on the corporate level, the other challenge you have is that we have a worldwide tax structure instead of a territorial tax structure. So I do tax reform to have economic growth. You take the corporate rate from 35, federal 35, down towards 15, 20. And I think 15 is the new 20 because of our state taxes. You go to full expensing so that you don't pay taxes on business investment. You don't depreciate over 5, 10, 20 years. You depreciate it. You expense it the year you actually buy the piece of equipment. Dramatically reduces the cost of capital investment. Big deal for for manufacturing and, and so on. And, all, and also people who sell computers because, you know, what, what is this? This computer is going to depreciate over three to six years. Oh, really? In 18 months, got to have a new one. 
who's the idiot in Washington, D.C. who thinks he's so smart that he can tell you how long a piece of equipment is going to be good for, a computer is going to be good for. So I think those those are the key ones. And then you just do dramatically increase 401ks, IRAs, so that people can save tax-free for their own retirement, for their health care, and to give them more choices there. Yeah, no, I think we could dramatically increase economic growth. We've done it. We did it under Reagan. Was it just taxes? No, it was taxes. It was deregulation. It was a reining in of spending more than I'd like, more than Reagan wanted. You had to deal with a Democratic House and at the end, a Democratic Senate, but a lot less spending than would have been if somebody else had been president. So spending restraint, rates down, deregulation, and then taking the trial lawyers and getting them to do something useful with their lives uh, instead of destroying people's jobs. Support for the gray area comes from Greenlight. If you're a parent of teenagers, you might be starting conversations about money management and financial literacy. So often, the best way to learn is to do. But when it comes to money, there can be real consequences to learning the hard way. That's where Greenlight comes in. Greenlight is a debit card and money app made for families. Parents can send money to their kids and keep an eye on their spending and saving. And kids and teens can build money confidence and lifelong financial skills. My kid is way too young to talk money with, thank God. But I have a colleague here at Vox that uses Greenlight with his boys, and he loves it. If you want to help your kids learn about money, consider Greenlight. It's a convenient way for parents to raise financially smart kids and for families to navigate this stuff together. Sign up for Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com slash gray area. That's greenlight.com slash gray area to try Greenlight for free. Greenlight.com slash gray area. So let me pull to the other theory of the tax pledge, which is mm-hmm. one you were talking about as a 12-year-old, this idea that it gives a defining difference between the two political parties. Yeah. And, and I think this is actually really interesting because the period in which you're growing up, in ways that I think it, it's hard for even someone like me who's a bit younger to grok, the parties were not nearly as sharply defined then as they are now. That's, um, that's they, an understatement. Yeah. So you had Northern Republicans who were quite liberal, who were more liberal than many Southern Democrats. And you have in the 50s, the American Political Science Association saying that what we need in this country are polarized parties, because right now, a Republican voting for the Republican Party in one state or another is actually not getting a clear choice because the party is so muddled at the, at the national level. And this is a way in which I think your tax pledge, but also just the broad trends for all kinds of reasons in American politics have led to a tremendous clarity in the difference between the two parties. Yeah. There's a paper that came out, I think it was about a year ago, I wrote about it on, on Vox, showing that low information voters today feel they better understand the difference between candidates than high information voters did in the 70s. And the theory of the paper is that that's because the differences are so much clearer. Now, yeah. people talk and lament polarized politics all the time. They talk and, and lament about how the two parties have become so far from each other they can't compromise. But this is the upside of it, that there's a clear choice and even mm-hmm. a, a relatively low information voter can know, do I want the party that won't raise taxes, that is pro-life, or do I want the party that will spend, they'll raise taxes, spend more on social programs, is pro-choice. Mm-hmm. How do you think about political polarization. Are you someone who sees it as a good thing? Do you feel like this has been a success? Well, the pledge has been a success in that it has exposed those Republicans and Democrats who would say things like, oh, I'm not for raising taxes in this environment. 
I think raising taxes would be the last thing I'd want to do. I think we need to, to reduce a lot of spending. I'm not in favor of raising taxes. Every one of those is qualified. That person has told you absolutely nothing about what they plan to do other than that they plan to raise your taxes. Somebody did a study that said promising not to raise taxes is not an indicator of whether you'll raise taxes or not. Signing the pledge is. And the reason for that is people like the, the pledge is a simple no net tax increase. We do it with state legislators, governors, presidential candidates. Senate House. We share it with everybody. We used to Xerox it and fax it around. Now it's online. You can see it. People can't walk away from it. People remember it. We saw President of the United States, who George Herbert Walker Bush, who managed the collapse of the Soviet Union without a lot of blood on the floor, got all of Eastern European all of Eastern Europe. It's really an underrated liberated. achievement, I think. Yes, yes, yes. It was but, quite an amazing thing what, yes, what him and that team did. That could have gone wrong in any number of ways. And, and it could have gone wrong nuclear. I mean, if you're mm-hmm. the guys losing the Cold War, what do you care if Germany disappears? Or what, the things you could do to Lithuania, Latvia, and Estonia on your way out, mm-hmm. settling scores and, and so on. And there were some shoot 'em ups in, in the Baltics at first. And, but the reaction in Moscow against that was so strong that anyway, they pulled back. I think Bush did a brilliant job. He kicked Iraq out of Kuwait much of the world to support that effort. He got other people to pay for it and kicked Iraq out of Kuwait, didn't get stuck, stuck occupying the place for 25 years. And everything that he said, here's what we're going to avoid, is what his son forgot to avoid. But he did that well. He managed the collapse of the Soviet Union. He got Ukraine independent, for crying out loud. You know, Without Ukraine, Russia's a small Baltic country. You know, It just doesn't matter as, as a world power. It's not even your, your Europe anymore. And it's short 50 million people from what it used to have. They get a little piece of it over on the side. Now they just made everybody mad at them. But he did that, and he broke his promise not to raise taxes. He signed the pledge, and he broke it, and he, got, he lost the next election. So in 94 is when I started to get 90, 95% of all Republicans running for office to sign the pledge, keep it. From 93, when... Clinton raised taxes with a Democratic House and a Democratic Senate and Democratic president, no Republican voting for those tax increases. Until 2009, Obama, Democratic House, Democratic Senate, Democratic president. During the 16 years, no net tax increase was passed in in the United States of America, at the federal level. Mm -hmm. level. We're taking that and driving it down through the states as well. Can I say something about that period? Mm -hmm. Certainly from the perspective of Taxes, that was a tremendous success. Um, Not raising taxes. Not raising taxes. At the same time, the way it was managed was deficits to a very large degree, particularly in the Bush years. And there was a war, and instead of raising taxes or cutting spending to pay for them, we just put it on the on the tab. Then when there was a recession, we had that much less firepower to actually deal with it, and the debt was already higher than it, it would have been otherwise. There was, in that period, William Niskanen of the, of the Cato Institute wrote that the star of the beast theory, the idea that if you just don't let taxes go up, eventually people have to cut spending to deal with it has, you know, he argued that had not been proven true, that in fact they would just keep running up the debt, and that that would actually allow in some ways for more spending, because if you didn't have the discipline of finding your pay force, then all of a sudden it's great fun to create a new government program like Medicare Part mm-hmm. D because you don't have to do the hard work of convincing people to pay for it. Did that period give you any pause about it? No, what it did, and this guy didn't live long enough to see the Tea Party movement, and he quite correctly points out you also need to hold down spending. And that is exactly what Bush failed to do. 
that's the Bush presidency and the Hastert speakership, and even delay with his comment, oh, we've really cut the budget to the bone. That's what led to the Tea Party movement, which was an anti-spending movement. It was not an anti-tax movement. It's an anti-spending movement. And I would have told you, because I'd been in this area for a long time, you can't have a revolt against spend too much. You have to wait until spend too much in California becomes raising property taxes and then Prop 13. The Americans didn't object to the British spending a whole bunch of money fighting the French and Indian Wars. They objected to the tax increases to pay for them. And that people will, will bring out the pitchforks on tax hikes, but not on spending. 2009, three months into the Obama presidency, he hadn't even talked about tax increases. There was just the TARP spending and the trillion-dollar increase in the, the baseline, which was to assume that we're going to be in Afghanistan and Iraq forever, and we're just going to take all that money that was—actually, we're not going to be, but when we're out of there, we're spending every dollar that went there on other stuff. So they raised right. the, the baseline a trillion dollars. So all of that stuff was hitting at once, and people reacted well, and we took the House and almost took the Senate on spending, on spending alone. So you now have in the Republican House and Senate both an anti-tax and an anti-spending, which makes the arch hold. And that was a very, very important project line, which is to— what lasted from the Tea Party was an anti-spending so, effort. So there's there's actually a lot I want to push on there. But actually, before we do, I want to go back to, to the underlying question because behind this is this idea of these polarized parties, parties that are having more trouble agreeing, parties that are having more trouble governing, I think, in a political system that requires a lot of compromise. It has supermajority requirements in the Senate for many things. It has a structure that is a checks and balances structure, differential elections, simultaneous democratic legitimacy. Now, we do have a clarity in what the parties stand for that we have never had before. And it's certainly part of my theory of this that that is actually not a bad thing, that some of the mm. lamenting of polarization has gone too far, that this idea that we shouldn't know what the parties stand for, that they should not be a choice and it's easy for someone to make, I don't totally get it. But on the other hand, there have been real governing challenges that have come alongside it. So abstracting a little bit out mm. from the tax pledge and its effects on, on politics, I'm curious how you think about this period uh, in American life, because you were there also in the Reagan era when there was, as you say, much more cooperation with Reagan and Tip O'Neill. I don't think all of it is stuff you would love, but certainly people who were here then often speak of that with great nostalgia. Do you have nostalgia for that? No. What you had with the two parties, when people say, oh, what about those good old days of bipartisan compromise? They're telling you how old they are, because they remember... 40, 50 years ago when the parties were regional parties. And if you were mm -hmm. Republican, you were born north of the Mason-Dixon line. And that's, you had no idea whether somebody wanted to raise taxes or cut taxes. They were born north of the Mason-Dixon line. And there were little old ladies in Mississippi who agreed with Ronald Reagan on absolutely everything and voted for George McGovern because Sherman had been unpleasant to Atlanta recently. Getting that behind us was necessary and helpful. We're not in the middle of a civil war. This is not a north-south thing. It's a big government versus limited government, individual rights versus statism. That's the question behind us. And the reason why you could have compromise, not just the bipartisan stuff, but the compromise, was that Richard Nixon wanted the government to get bigger, and Ted Kennedy wanted it to get much bigger. And so compromising between bigger and much bigger is sort of bigger. But if you do that 20 years in a row, you've really got the violence than state, and there's no 
person arguing for smaller. So you drift further and further left and further and further into big government and further and further into European welfare state and with, with no tug back. All you get is a Republican president will slow it down a little bit and then every once in a while a Democrat president with a Democratic House and Senate, you get these huge jumps forward. Half of the federal government was created in two-year periods, 34 to 36, 64 to 66. If the D's hadn't had these super majorities in time of crisis, Democratic president, Democratic House and Senate, federal government would be half its present size. And those were opportunities that, that the left took, that the status took, that the big government guys took. So I think it's very good to have a question. You want the government to get bigger or smaller? Bigger or smaller? When you have a divided government, Republican House and Senate, Democrat president, Bigger and smaller means nothing. If somebody wants to get bigger and somebody wants to get smaller and each has the power to veto the other, don't move at all, which is much better than moving in the wrong direction. But I'm showing you my favorite. We, we, have, a, we have a visual aid here on the yes. podcast. This is in the 50 states of the United States. There are 31 where the Republicans have both houses of the legislature and in 23 of those 31, they have the Republican governor and both houses of mm -hmm. the legislature. And the, the population in the states with Republican governor, 142 million. There are seven states where the Democrats have the governorship and both houses, and only 11 states where they have the legislature, both House and Senate. So 31 states, Republican legislature con complete, 11 states, uh, Democrat legislature control, and the guys in the middle are, are split, but you can even see those tending to be trending uh, are Kentucky will become a red state. And recently we've seen Arkansas went from completely blue to completely red, West Virginia completely blue to becoming completely red. So by having the clarity, the Republicans now have the position that the D's had in the 30s, the 40s, the 50s, and the 60s, which is we own the state legislatures. We own more of the governors than not. We will keep moving in the right direction. Take a look at those red and, and yellow states, red being all Republican, yellow being both houses Republican. Those are states that are going to reform their pension systems. The blue states are never going to reform their pension systems, and they're going to spiral further and further out. And the advantage that conservatives have is that our policies work. And so when we do something at the state level, like Texas and Florida, people move to Texas and Florida. When Illinois and uh, New York and California do what they do, people leave those states. Okay? They leave. Businesses leave. People leave. Young people leave. And that's the challenge that you have. Illinois and California and New York are all spiraling off on pension challenges. I don't know how they're going to fix them, state by state. And what I do know is the red states and the yellow states, the, the Republican states are becoming increasingly successful and moving towards lower taxes. The blue states are raising taxes. The red states are cutting taxes. And so we're going to take the successes at the state level, as we did with term limits, which then moved uh, the big reform I think that Gingrich made was to term limit committee chairs. And then the Senate had to follow. No longer did some guy sit in one place for 30 years and hold back progress or defend corruption in giveaway programs and uh, accumulate favors. We neutered much of the appropriators. Now, the appropriators are trying to put themselves in a uniform and, and say they're national defense and, and they want to do more appropriations, and that's the only success that they're having when they can, when they can put a uniform on the appropriation and say, oh, this, this is for the military, and then the mumble, 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 it turns out to be something else. But even that's not doing what the, the left would hope it to, could to do. To go to the, the 
distinction of the two parties as bigger government and smaller government. I actually agree with that as a shorthand people use. I'm curious to what extent you feel that there is tension or fracture there in the, on, on the Republican side. And, and here's what I mean. Mm-hmm. Within the Tea Party, there are a lot of explanations for what the Tea Party was. You characterized it as an anti-spending movement. I would probably characterize it more as an anti-Obama movement at that moment anyway. And there were it was a lot of polling done at the Tea Party, and much of it found that they were comfortable raising taxes on the rich. Much of it found they loved mm. Medicare and Social Security. Tea Party members tend to be older, older. so that made a certain amount of yeah. sense. The Tea Party, to some degree, is followed by Donald Trump on the national level, who, whatever he is, he is not a revolt against spending. He's a guy out there saying, it's going to be so amazing. We're going to grow the economy so much. We're going to be able to spend on everything, on military, on entitlements and has taken a sort of right-wing populism. And something that appears to me from the outside of the Republican Party to be happening is that there has been a coalition, as you had put it, in the party of people who were against government for very different reasons, people who came from the donor class, who wanted lower taxes, less regulation, but also people from the white working class who did want social programs. And their anger and their frustration was they felt for a long time that their money was being spent on immigrants, on minorities, that it wasn't that they didn't like government. It's that they felt they weren't the ones being served by it. And what Huckabee began a little bit in 2012, and certainly what Donald Trump has been continuing, is this idea of maybe you can split that apart. Maybe you can take the people who are conservative and culturally traditionalist. But what they want is not for government to be small, but for that money to be spent on them and move them into a central force in the Republican Party. No, that's not what's happening. The good news is... Oh, well, that's a, that's a relief. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I knew you were worried. The way to understand the modern Reagan Republican Party, the modern center-right party, is a series of circles like a Venn diagram and or at our Wednesday meeting. Why are you in the room? I'm in the room because I want my Second Amendment rights protected. Okay, I don't want you messing with my guns. I'm in the room because I want to homeschool. I'm in the room because I want to go to private schools. I'm in the room because I want to go to charter schools, not have the unions run my kids' education. I'm in the room because I'm evangelical Protestant, conservative Catholic, Orthodox Jew, Muslim, Mormon, and the most important thing in my life is practicing my faith and transmitting my kids, and I, I don't want the government messing with me. I don't want my taxes raised. I don't want my property taken away. I'm an Uber driver. I'm one of 400,000 Uber drivers, and Hillary Clinton is going to crack down her words on independent contractor law, which would make Uber illegal. The Democrats and the labor unions want, and the trial lawyers want to end franchise agreements. So you can't be your own boss. You have to work for, you have to be number 14 down the line on McDonald's. You can't be the guy who runs the McDonald's. You have to be the guy who works for somebody who manages regional things so that the whole company can get sued and the whole company can get unionized. Hillary wants you to have a boss is, is basically what this campaign is about. If you want to be self-employed, you're out of luck if Hillary wins because their Supreme Court won't allow it. And the whole gig economy is up for grabs and cannon will be crushed if the unions and the trial lawyers have their way. And right now, they have the commanding heights of the modern Democratic Party. And to get Hillary to come out and attack charter schools as she did and say, well, the teachers union is going to have to be able to play here. And to say that we're going to go after Uber because of independent contractor laws and make you be an employee, not an independent contractor, Democrats have picked their side on one of the most dynamic parts of the American economy. And so you've got this coalition of people who want to be left alone on different areas. So why you can say to somebody, oh, you're 70 years old, you like Social Security. Well, first of all, they paid into Social Security. They were told this is just their money back. Now, you live long enough, you're getting more than your money back. And maybe their kids 
would like to be able to invest for themselves. But that's not a conflict of all, and they don't vote on that issue because nobody's talking about taking away some 70-year-old Social Security. We're talking about reforming it so that their grandchild but, will actually well, be able to take it. Well, when this got tried in 2005, it was a big political loser. Uh, what, what was the big political loser is when Bush went away from his original commitment, we're going to go to f- give you a 401k option for young people. And the Democrats said, no way. And I, I, I got a call from the White House, I remember it, saying, we now have a majority, 55 seats in the Senate. We're going to do Social Security reform. I said, no, you're not. Take 60 votes. Oh, there are many Democrats, eight Democrats, eight Democrats willing to reform Social Security. I said, no, there are eight Democrats who are willing to raise taxes to fix Social Security and to cut benefits to fix Social Security. The two things you said you wouldn't do and the two things that Democrats have done for the last 60 years on Social Security, all they've done is raise taxes and cut benefits all the way through. That doesn't work. Only moving to defined contribution will make Social Security successful going out and still succeed if people's life expectancy increases, which is a good thing, not a bad thing. The perspective on the Republican Party you're giving me is, I think, the the one that has animated your meetings for a long time. It's one I've heard you talk about in, in the past. Has anything that has happened in the last four years, in, in the Tea Party, in mm-hmm. Trump, in the primaries, has any of it changed your mind on anything? Because I think it doesn't feel to me like a straight line. The coalition of the left alone to Donald Trump mm-hmm. doesn't feel to me like a straight line. Two things. One is, I would say, yes, has it changed? It's expanded. We have today 13 million Americans with a concealed carry permit, the right to carry a gun anywhere they want with them, uh, in their purse, in their car, in the small of their back. 13 it's million. It's an exciting time to be alive. It is. And that was uh, 3 to 4 million in 2004. That was illegal in just about all 50 states, courtesy of Jim Crow laws, and, and the South was the first guys to say no concealed carry. But now that's ended. And... 13 million people, it's growing a million and a half a year. Look at the swing states, one and a half million concealed carry permit holders, active, active, not just accumulated, but active in Florida. One million in Pennsylvania, 650,000 in Michigan, 450,000 in Ohio, 155,000 in Colorado, heck, 250,000 in Massachusetts. So you're looking at a Second Amendment community much broader than what Hillary, when Hillary grew up, she thought, Gun owners lived in Wyoming and they shot elk or deer or something with four feet and antlers. And you could spit at them. Uh, And nobody cared because they don't affect key voting constituencies in swing states. She hasn't looked at the numbers. Fracking. The Democrats used to be able to go, oh, we hate oil people, we hate coal people. Well, it cost them West Virginia and it's about to cost them Kentucky on coal. But they've pretty much damaged that industry as much as they're able to. Now we're talking about fracking and Hillary Clinton in a debate where Bernie said, well, I'm going to end fracking. And she said, well, and she said something not about ending it. And she said, well, when they get done with the regulations I'm putting forward, you won't be able to do it so, many places. So, so to interrupt you for a second on this, these are disagreements that, that you and many conservatives have with the Democratic Party. And, and they're all, I grant mm-hmm. them all. But there is a fascinating disagreement between Republicans and the Republican Party right now. And I guess what I want to yeah. push you on a little bit but is you're, you're interested in are there conflicts that? inside the modern Republican Party? And I said, are there differences? Well, of more opinions? is what it Well, to go back to the, the underlying question here, the question of big government and small government mm-hmm. is the way I have long thought about American politics. And the reason I'm asking you about this here is that I am trying to ask myself this year how actually relevant is that? How much was that the way 
people who like me who are involved in politics in an ideological policy driven way see politics mm -hmm. and how much has doing that blinded me to within probably both coalitions, but most saliently right now, the Republican coalition, very, very large factions of that coalition who maybe that wasn't what they were there for. Maybe they were angry about other things. And there was a second, there was a second best compromise that had been enforced for a long time by party structures, but is now breaking apart. No, because if you look at the folks who vote for Trump and who vote for Cruz and so on, there's a lot of grumpiness. There are 13 million unemployed people who shouldn't be unemployed if we'd been growing at Reagan rates instead of Obama rates. 13 million unemployed people. If you want to blame immigrants for that, well, we had immigrants when Reagan was president, but we had growth when Reagan was president. The challenge that they're looking at is lack of economic opportunity. We've had massive overregulations on everything from energy to other things. The cost of, of health care has gone up, not down. All the things that the left promised the state would do haven't worked out. So, no, the same challenge. And it's, it's not big government versus small government. It's statism versus individualism. I'm, I'm in favor of a government that competently does a few things and protects people's property and right and life and, and keeps the Canadians on their side of the border because they're shifting it's, it's, kind it's, of guys. It's about time someone stood up yes, to, to those goddamn Canadians. And they keep sneaking over because <laughs> they think we don't notice. What I would argue is that the Leave Us Alone Coalition is actually growing and has gotten more constituents and... Whereas the Democrats used to be able to yell at energy people, now you're looking at fracking. Fracking's in Colorado, swing state. Fracking's in Ohio, swing state. What did Trump carry? He carried the fracking counties in Ohio. Why? Because Kasich had been calling for taxing fracking, among other things, and all of western Pennsylvania. Try and win the presidency without Ohio, Pennsylvania, Colorado. This is a swing vote that, that's blue collar that works in the energy industry, and one party has announced they wanted to shut your industry down. I think those votes are not only available to Republicans, I think they're pushing, they're being pushed away by the Ds. The Dems' challenge is that they've got this two structures, trial lawyers and public sector unions, and the rest, everybody else, those are the paying customers, and everybody else gets, it gets bones every once in a while. But I'm not sure, with the gay marriages are sort of off the table, the big social issue that's supposed to animate folks from a left-of-center perspective. I do see, on the economic issues, being able to run against Hillary. On foreign policy issues, it's, it's largely a competence attack. So, so I think that's a super interesting observation you just made. I want to follow up on it for a second. You, if, if I can reflect this back at you, you yeah. said that gay marriage and some of the other cultural issues have been are, are losing salience as to some degree they're decided. The Republican Party sort of made a decision at the national level not to fight on gay marriage, right? They're going to let that one go, I think. And it's definitely my impression of politics. And I think there's some polling to back this up, that culturally politics is becoming more of a identity for people than it was 30 or 40 years ago, that when you ask somebody, are they a Republican or are they a Democrat, you can now predict much more about their opinions on something like, should 12 Years a Slave win an Oscar or what is Lady Gaga like than you could have you know, uh, 30 years ago when it did not sort along those opinions. You've talked a couple times here about independent contractors in Uber, and a, a mutual friend of ours, Greg Ferenstein, has done a lot of polling among Silicon Valley CEO types and entrepreneurs, and he's found they're extraordinarily democratic. And on some of them, I think that's a little bit puzzling for reasons you lay out. I don't think, I think it is clear that overall the Republican Party has been friendlier 
to at least the specifics of Uber's business model than the Democratic Party. Travis Kalanick of Uber likes Obamacare, so indirectly there are things that Democrats do that help them. But in terms of how much they want to regulate what Uber's doing, Republicans have embraced that much more quickly than Democrats. But it has seemed to me that there is such a big cultural gap between the Republican Party on a lot of these social issues and then on some other things around diversity. And you see this in, in Trump, I think. There's a branding problem that is keeping people like that who might naturally be Republicans from crossing over there. And, and Democrats have the same event on other sides, right? They feel this way very much about the white working class. But it looks to me like the cultural signifiers of politics as we become more polarized are actually becoming more powerful. Is it your view that they're actually becoming weaker? Look, I'm looking at vote moving issues. And I know I've been talking to the guys out in Silicon Valley and you get them on politics and they talk about gay marriage. This is last several years. And then you step away from that for a sec and they hate the public sector unions because they're destroying education in the country. And with a Supreme Court decision that says gay marriage is, is, you now have to decide, are you going to be held hostage by the party, which considers the public sector unionization of teachers and recapturing charter schools and closing down private school options and homeschooling? Gates is one of the smarter guys in the world. He spent $5 billion trying to reform education without irritating the unions and doesn't have $5 billion used to and nothing to show for it other than you can't reform the public school system without irritating the unions because the union bosses are a lot of the problem that you have there. I think it's a very easy case to make to people. And the D's, the, the challenges you have with, and even Trump is arguing for better trade deals, not not trade deals, but better trade deals. The modern Democrat Party is opposed to the deals, period, not not better versus versus good. You saw this the shutdown on trade at the end of the Clinton administration. Wait, did he, you just said the modern Democratic Party. Well, you said Democrat. I don't understand what it is with Republicans saying the Democrat Party, but you said the modern Democratic Party is opposed to trade deals. Isn't Barack Obama just doing the Trans-Pacific Partnership trade deal like as we speak? Okay. And he has, um, with all the power of the presidency, has gotten how many Ds to vote for it or support it, next to none. I mean, the, the, the number of Ds who vote for a trade deal is, is a fraction of what it was even in the Clinton years. There's, these were still a Republican effort. At the end of the day, Silicon Valley and the tech world has to deal with a Democratic Party hostile to trade, owned by the trialers, owned by the labor unions. There's no future for them in that. And so why no, aren't they more Republican now? I think you're quite right that some of it was a cultural thing. It's a way of saying, you know, I'm, I'm tolerant to, and they're not terribly political. So it wasn't a terribly meaningful statement to say I'm a D. You, does that mean you agree with them on foreign policy on, on each of these issues? No, I just, um, you know. Do you think immigration is a big problem for the Republican Party there? Because it, it's often seemed to me that it's far as any of them have a primary political commitment mm -hmm. that marries sort of where they are culturally with where they are professionally, right, in terms of what their business is and in terms of what they believe, that immigration is very central to their thinking. That's a very interesting one because, of course, immigration comes in different pieces. I mean, Trump's for H-1B visas and H-2 visas and J visas and so on, and for a work program, which is basically what the Republicans have been trying to get to for some time and the unions won't allow. The guy who killed immigration reform uh, at the end of the Bush administration, it was named Barack Obama. He walked in and dropped the letter on the table and said, this is not happening. The FLCIO, I think that Harry Reid. For the record, I think that I agree with you that Obama was not helpful on immigration reform. I think it 
gives him a lot more power than he had back then to say he killed it. There's the bo- I mean, there was a okay. huge talk radio-driven conservative revolt okay. that but, year. But just to go back, Bob Novak reported that specific incident and gave him credit as the guy who killed it at the time before he was running for president. But he was this was earning his chops with organized labor. And why, when he was president for two years and had a Democratic House and Senate, he did nothing on immigration. All he, everything he's done on immigration and trade is now that he can't do anything. Now he's pretending and saying to the business guys, see, I'm trying. This all could have well, happened in the first two years. Well, don't you think he would have signed the bill if he got the bill? The President's, Senate Gang of Eight bill? Oh, the Senate, well, the Senate Gang of Eight bill was not going to operate. It had no, it had absolutely no but, effort for for workers to be able to, to have any sort of uh, guest worker program or H-1B or visas or any of those sorts of things. It was, it was set up, the number of jobs that they were willing to have people come in for in construction was 15,000 or something. It, it just, it, it was never going anywhere, and everybody in the Senate knew that. It had to be the opening bid on the House side, but that by that point, people had lost such confidence in Obama. And that's, that's one of the challenges you don't know is people are reacting to what they see as Obama's treatment on immigration and some of these other and trade issues. Are they really hostile to those two? The Republican Party has nominated the most pro-immigrant candidate going back to Reagan throughout history, including McCain, 2008, the big anti-immigrant thing. Sometimes... Unhappiness at a lousy economy, which comes from high taxes and too much regulations and too much spending, can get destroyed. Oh, oh, look at those guys. The Chinese are showing up. The Chinese Exclusion Act, as one of the labor professors bragged, every single restrictionist immigration policy in American history, going back to the Chinese Exclusion Act, has been run by organized labor. And, and headed by organized labor's campaign. Uh, and that hasn't changed, despite the rhetoric having changed from the Democrats. Organized labor is hostile to the idea of immigration, period. So I think your argument, if I could reflect this back mm-hmm. here to make, make sure I have it, is that the Republican Party, even Donald Trump's Republican Party, even that faction of it, is a lot less hostile on the specifics of immigration than perhaps the media presentation of them is, maybe than their own self-presentation is. That speaks to, I think, something we were talking about a second ago in the way these things can also be sort of cultural and attitudinal issues. I think that right now a real problem that certainly Trump faces is that there is a belief among Latinos, but among, I think, most people who follow these issues, that he is emotionally anti-immigrant, that the the people who are backing him are emotionally anti-immigrant, that part of his rise is a reaction to, as you say, the Republican Party having nominated a number of candidates, one after the other, McCain, George W. Bush, who were very friendly to immigration. I mean, there's a lot of anger in the Republican Party at Ronald Reagan's 1986 immigration reforms. And that that is going to be, even if you could get the policy into a more compromised place, that that's going to be a very big cultural hurdle. And for the Democrats, by the way, on the flip side, many of them are a lot more, a lot friendlier to enforcement. As you say, within organized labor, there actually is a lot of concern in factions of the Democratic Party. I think the evidence on wage suppression here is pretty weak, but nevertheless, there is a lot of concern about it. But they can't convince anybody of that because culturally, the parties become very pro-immigration. It's it's an interesting issue. I tend to think that if you had a Republican president who promised to have border security with whatever the new rules are in immigration, that you could you could come to an agreement that that you'd have something that both gave you border security and we'd have more more H one B visas, more J visas. You'd, you'd just be able to. The farmers have a huge problem. The dairy people have a huge problem. You saw two questions to uh, Cruz and Trump at the uh, Wisconsin discussion. Uh, dairy is a particularly important issue for for dairy, and at the end of the day, the concerns that some people have: we need economic growth, 
And if you can get economic growth back on track, then I think we can have a reasonable conversation about what happens with, with immigration. It always, because people, there's an effort to redirect the problems we have economically, which I think stem from Obama's economic policies, including his cheerful support for Fannie and Freddie, which helped make him president. So that's, we turn the economy around and we grow. Then we can have a discussion about, is it a problem or a good thing to have more guys come in and start computer companies in Silicon Valley? I think it's a good thing. We were talking about Silicon Valley a couple of minutes ago, and, and famously, you've been to Burning Man now, I think, twice, mm-hmm. if I'm right. Yeah. What, what did you learn from Burning Man? What, what, was your, what did that experience teach you? Well, it was great fun. I mean, 70,000 people show up in this desert that a couple of weeks before is just desert, mm-hmm. what land looks like when the federal government runs it. And it's dusty, and it's desert, and there's nothing there, and there are no animals except some crustacean, some little shrimp that lives under the ground and shows up every hundred years or something. It's great fun. It is letting people, they set up roads and then they go, do what you want to do. And people do all sorts of very interesting uh, things. They, they do entertainment. I've lectured a couple of places that uh, there. I've done stand-up comedy. There's a stand-up comedy camp yeah. at Burning Man? No, not a camp. It's, it, it, it's, it's basically a bar camp. Uh-huh. And then it's like, they asked if I'd come in and do stand-up at, well, the, great. at their bar. It isn't Woodstock. Woodstock was a bunch of teenagers who drove out and forgot you needed to have a place to buy gas and you needed porta potties and you needed food and things like that. And the, and the army and the <laughs> National Guard bailed all these hopeless people out. And it was great music, but as a scene, it was a bunch of people who didn't take care of themselves and didn't plan ahead, which is why they didn't do Woodstock two, three, four, five, six, seven. Mm-hmm. They didn't do it every year. This is something where people come. It's built organically. It is Hayekian spontaneous order. It is not top-down management. There's, there's no government. They do sort of lay out a roads system, and, and people assign and get property rights assigned. So there's the sort of things, the legitimate things the government does, then they go away. The only annoying thing is that the Bureau of Land Management tries to extort money from that every year. They tried to extort about $2 million last time. Unfortunately, somebody leaked their list of demands, including 24-7 ice cream for their staff and all this other stuff, and and uh, ceramic toilets for them instead of the plastic ones that other people use, uh, porter potties. And they wanted all this money, and then they buy stuff, and they bring all of the BLM staff to come in their view, manage the place. They just get in the way. There's security that, that's provided by Burning Man to make sure everybody's okay and so on. It's great, except the government mucks with it. So it's like America. It's great, except the government mucks with it. <laughs> Do you have a playa name? No, I have never had a nickname, and I, I think that that's because people are smarter than to give me a nickname, <laughs> including George W. Bush. I kept thinking, if he gives me a nickname, this is just not happening, okay? And somehow I give out this vibe. We don't do nicknames here, okay? Grover's odd and unique enough that, that you don't need, you know. If it was John, you, you could, I could see a nickname. Mm-hmm. Would you, which John? Okay, there's several Johns. There aren't enough Grovers to uh, cause confusion. So no, no play a name other than Grover. What are three books that you think my audience should read? And, and my audience is, I think, probably more left-leaning in general than you. What are, what are three books you would recommend to them? Oh, um, Hayek's Road to Serfdom, which is an argument that both right and left statism is dangerous to individual liberty and society and is, is unnecessary, destructive, not constructive. Extraordinary Delusions and the Madness of Crowds. It's written, I think, in the 1870s. 
going back to the run-up in the price of tulips, to going after witches, to crusades, all of these things, to, to riots about prices of tickets to the theater in London, where, where just people go mad over various things for many years and over some period of time. And that's always, a, 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 I think, a fun one. I like to reread that from time to time. And I've been reading, I read a lot of murder mysteries. Uh, <laughs> What's a good murder mystery? Anything by Agatha Christie. But I would recommend Stephen Saylor's collection on Roma Sub Rosa, which is a collection, maybe 15 books now, on murder mysteries that take place in Caesar's Rome. So he goes back before Caesar and then past it with a father's son, both of whom are like Sherlock Holmes, but in the time. And it's good Roman history. Uh, he had one that came out a little while ago on uh, the... Uh, seven Wonders of the of the Ancient World, where there are seven stories. They go to the Seven Wonders, and there are seven stories. And at the end, you realize this is not seven stories. It all ties into to one big story. And it's very good Roman history by a serious scholar of Roman history and well-written murder mysteries. Sometimes you get guys who are very good at murder mysteries, but they aren't that good in, it's sort of clunky about dropping in the, mm -hmm. the, the history. And there are others that's clearly written by historians and nobody will read their stuff on the 13th century in Ireland. But if they make a murder mystery out of it, they think they can, and maybe the murder mysteries aren't as good as they could be. And a number of do quite well with, with both. And I think that uh, Stephen Saylor's, one, I like the period of history that he covers, but I think he also writes Good murder mysteries. What's something not about politics that you believe that most people think is wrong? Probably lots of things. And because I'm in politics, I don't discuss them. Fair enough. Can you give me one in politics? I think free trade is a benefit to the country that has the free trade. I think Hong Kong did well by not having tariffs instead of negotiating with other mm -hmm. people and waiting for them to not have tariffs. Now, maybe they weren't in a position to quote-unquote negotiators, perhaps the United States could. But I, I tend to think that free trade is strong, pro-growth, helpful, and raises the wages of the people in the country. And there's this, I mean, it's only several centuries of, of both protectionism and mercantilism that says, no, no, that somehow the goal is to get these pieces of paper while these other countries get your stuff. I want the stuff. <laughs> the stuff is the, the little pieces of paper to buy stuff with. Any up with the little pieces of paper and not stuff doesn't strike me as, as necessarily progress. I tend to think it's more self-evident that free trade is a winner for all the people who tend to think that it might not be. Mm -hmm. um, but I think you just do that by demonstrating it over time. Do you feel that people have a better time absorbing and, and sort of understanding problems, trade-offs in terms of jobs and prices. I always think that when we have the trade discussion, it's always interesting to me how much easier it seems to be for people to think about the effect trade has on, on jobs. And obviously that's a contested question, but still, then the effect it has on prices and, and who that may benefit and, and where that might be important. Yeah, and that's very interesting because that's why organized labor has historically been against prices, even though the people they quote represent. I'm starting to wonder are, if you like organized labor. Um, labor unions, <laughs> no, not coercive labor unions. If somebody wants to voluntarily set up a labor union and, and not steal anybody's money or tell them what to do, that's fine. And and you have some unions like that. It just Particularly the government unions are, are coercive and not voluntary, and that becomes a problem. I had this discussion with a hundred CEO types, and the question was, why does the country seem to not understand the benefits of trade? 
everybody in the room thought the trade was good. And these guys were com- they ran companies. They competed with foreigners, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> but they still saw it as good. They didn't want to close the borders and go, I can get rich with a closed economy. And the answer to that, what I well, what I said was the answer. Said there is a structure, the National Rifle Association, which fights for the Second Amendment. It's the only thing it does. You can't go to them and say, "Hey, we'll cut your taxes. You mind if we steal your guns?" No, we just do the Second Amendment. I do Americans for tax reform. Don't raise taxes. I have politicians come. Why are you mad at me? I'm pro-life. <laughs> go tell the Right to Life Committee about that. You're raising taxes. You're on my bad list right now, or you're thinking about, you're having impure thoughts about raising taxes. Don't do this. There's a right to life movement. There isn't a free trade movement. You have business associations like Chamber of Commerce with 25, 30 major issues that are important to them. You know, energy, taxes, regulation, and free trade over here. We walk into a congressman or senator and say, I want you to do 25 things. And he says, I like these five. I'll help you. But what about trade? No, I can't help you there. Well, it's not believable the Chamber of Commerce is going to come after you with, with, with a sledgehammer or even campaign against you or even say something mildly snotty about you because you told, well, I got these other five. What you need is a structure that says we're promoting the virtues and values and how free trade is good for low-income people because it reduces all the cost of all the stuff they buy. And it also helps with, with more economic growth, more jobs in the country where you have more free trade. And that's one where I think a single issue entity could have a lot of effect. But because they get bundled up in all of these other issues, even the retailers, when the retailers come in, they want to, could we tax internet sales? And could we have free trade? I'll tax internet sales. Okay. You can't go to a politician and get his attention if you have a list of seven things you'd like. Grover Norquist, thank you very much. Thanks. That is my conversation with Grover Norquist. Thank you very much, Tim, for taking the time. Thank you to all of you for listening. Thank you to our producer, AC Valdez. This is a co-production of Vox.com and Panoply. And if you enjoyed it, you might also enjoy my other podcast, The Weeds, where I talk with my colleagues, Matt Iglesias and Sarah Cliff, about all the most fascinating policy topics in the land. See you next week.